you have your Bible today, will you can turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, where the two texts for today are printed on page 9 in your bulletin. So first, a brief reading from Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there's no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And then from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or sorry, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore don't associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we ask you now to work in our hearts as we hear your word in Jesus' good name. Amen. So for the second time, I'd like to draw your attention to that little verse in the Ecclesiastes text, verse 11, which has a sort of strange picture for us. It has a picture there of a shepherd giving two gifts. The words of the wise are one gift. The collected sayings of the wise are another gift. And as I said last week, you don't have to be too familiar with this part of Israel's Bible to know that this is obviously God because the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. The book of Proverbs tells us that. The Lord gives wisdom. This shepherd is God. It's the Lord. And I'd like you to notice what these two gifts do. God uses wise things that we hear throughout our lives. I'm sure you've all had moments in your life when you've heard something and it just gives you clarity. You're like, you know, that just makes so much sense. I just feel like a light went on in my head. You've heard wisdom. And God uses the words of the wise and their collected sayings to do two things, you will notice. He uses those wise words to goad us. I said last week, 
You do not want to be on the receiving end of a goad as a rule. <laughs> it is a sharp pointed metal stick that you use to get an ox um, moving and it's intended to poke and not feel good. And God sort of goads us toward things we might not naturally want as we hear wisdom. But he, there's something else that these gifts do. They don't just goad us, they are like firmly fixed nails. They nail some things down in our hearts and our lives on which we can hang everything else. There's a whole lot of stuff in your house that is hanging on the nails that are firmly fixed. And that's how wisdom is in our lives. And if you listen, I've suggested, to, to wise people talk, you listen to wise people think out loud and reflect, I've suggested that you're going to hear three kind of goading questions down underneath the stuff that they talk about and think about. One question that kind of goads us is, what makes us who we are? I've called that the identity question. And the wise people think about that. What makes us who we are? Another question, what is to become of us? Like you just can't be alive and not have that question come to mind. What is to become of us? I've called that the inheritance question. And the third very practical question, how do we live? I've called that the instruction question. What makes us who we are? What's to become of us? How do we live? And of course, if you read through the Bible, you realize God's wisdom is constantly speaking to those questions and shepherding us toward understanding how to think about those three questions. And today we're on the second question, which I've called the inheritance question, what's to become of us? Now, I just want to quickly pause here and say something, uh, because I think that the label we gave to the first question, what makes us who we are, I think you can immediately see why we would use the word identity. You know, that, identity is a word that you hear all the time in our world, and you can think about, yeah, what's, what makes us who we are? That's an identity question. But I am guessing that if I ask the second question, what is to become of you? What's to become of me? Is there any purpose or goal or destiny toward which your life is actually moving? Can there be a purpose or a goal for your life? Should there be a purpose or goal for your life? What is to become of you? What's to become of me? I doubt any of you would think of the word inheritance as a label for that question. Because we're North Americans, you know, as I think about my future, my future is going to be what I make of my future. I mean, that's just the reality. And any relevance of quote unquote inheritance in that future that I'm gonna try to build for myself is that maybe at some point, this is how Americans think, maybe at some point my old man is gonna kick off and I'm gonna get a little money out of my old man when he doesn't no longer, he no longer needs it. That's like the only relevance inheritance could have. Because the word inheritance, other than maybe getting some money at some point in your life, inheritance just does not resonate with people who live as if they are orphans, who live as runaways from God. Inheritance is just not a big part of, you know, the way you think about life when you're kind of running away from the God who made you. But for those of us who are, and who know we are, as Paul describes us here in Ephesians, we are God's beloved children. And we know the future that comes with that identity. The word inheritance totally resonates with us. And I want to take just a moment and kind of nail, spend a few minutes nailing down our inheritance, kind of fixing it as God's wisdom speaks to us. And then I want to, later in the message, I want to just take a minute and kind of feel the goad of our inheritance. So let's first of all just kind of spend a minute nailing, nailing down our inheritance. A few years ago, I watched a little TV series called Wolf Hall. It's about Thomas Cromwell, who was eventually the chief minister to King Henry VIII. So we're kind of in the 16th century. And uh, I don't know really quite how historically accurate this little series is, but I 
what, I, what struck me as I was watching it was when uh, Thomas Cromwell would come home from his royal affairs, uh, serving the king, and he would come home to his home estates. And at home, he had a son named Gregory, probably in his early 20s, and he also had another young man named Rafe who had been uh, entrusted to him when he, Rafe was a little boy uh, to kind of raise and educate. And what is interesting is you watch the scenes where Thomas Cromwell is walking around his estates with Gregory and Rafe is that these two young men look at their father, or in Rafe's case, his guardian, and they just think Thomas Cromwell is the man. There's just, unlike the way most adolescents today look at their parents, there is so much respect in the way that they talk to him and look at him. And what is at least as interesting is how Cromwell treats them because he treats these two very young men almost as if they are equals of his. He takes them into his councils, he talks with them, he deliberates with them. They are young men, they are youthful men, but he knows that at least in Gregory's case, this young man's gonna inherit this whole estate one day. Both of these young men are gonna be players in his world of the English aristocracy. He knows that, he senses that, and he talks to them that way. And what's interesting is both of these young men sense this as well, and they're just so actively interested in the affairs of this estate of their father and guardian. And they are eager to do anything he directs them to do. And because of their relationship with their father and their Lord, not only are these two young men completely assured of their future, they know what's coming, but they are working alongside him to get ready for that thing that they know is coming. And the reason that is so interesting to me is because if you think about it, brothers and sisters, that was always God's plan for his earthly kingdom. Because you guys know, after God formed the world and he filled the world with a whole lot of creatures, he then makes a son in his own image, in his own royal image, and he makes his son, his name was Adam, for two things. One was to enjoy communion with the Father, kind of like Gregory and Rafe, to, to be with the Father and commune with him. We can call it fellowship or friendship or whatever. It was to be a very warm, interactive, intimate relationship, communion. But not only to be in communion with the Father, Adam, the son, he was to exercise dominion. He was to rule over the Father's creation, not as a tyrant, but like his father rules, with love, with grace, with generosity, with joy. So those were the two things that God made his son for, to, for communion and for dominion. Adam was to specifically take dominion in a garden, tend it, cultivate it, guard it, protect it from bad things. And the plan was that Adam was supposed to take this communion and dominion in that garden, and he was to extend it down the rivers of Eden, out to the four, ends, uh, four corners of the world, if you want to think of it that way, out to the ends of the earth, because God told his son, I don't want you just to hang out in, the, in Eden forever. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the whole earth. Make it all a garden. That was the plan. Communion and dominion everywhere. Well, the son couldn't do that alone, could he? It wasn't good to be alone because he needed some help. And so God formed a princess for his prince out of his own flesh, and as they went out now and had babies, and those babies eventually grew up and had babies, as they went out and human beings took dominion in the various gardens of the world, always in communion with their father, God's children would one day inherit the earth. I'd like you to notice something. Already in Eden, with Adam and Eve, 
God's kingdom already exists. Wherever you find human beings in communion with God, taking dominion over things he's given them to do, that's the kingdom of God. Human beings in communion with God and with each other, ruling over, taking responsibility for, stewarding things God gives them to do, that is the kingdom of God. And it already existed there in Eden. But that little micro kingdom was to expand and one day it was to become something way more glorious as God's son obeyed his father. And it was that glorified kingdom, that, that kingdom, actually a whole earth full of God's glory, that glorified kingdom was what this son, Adam, and his bride were one day going to inherit. Now, you know the story goes on, of course. If only that had been, if only it was that simple, right? Because sin happens. And sin shatters the communion. The friendship, the fellowship between father and son was broken. And we human beings lost our dominion because now we're not fit to rule. And we forfeited our inheritance, right? That whole glorious earth that we look forward to, that glory to come, that's just gone now. That's off the table because we we don't have a right to rule in God's world anymore. And the way Paul puts it here in this Ephesians text, human beings, instead of being obedient sons and daughters, They became, as Paul describes them in verse 6 in your Ephesians text, we're now became sons of disobedience, rebels, traitors against our father. Interestingly, the Bible also says we became slaves of our own sin. Like once we started sinning, we couldn't stop. Having chosen to turn away from God, having chosen to dread him, mistrust him, hate him, fight against him, like we couldn't get the brakes on. Paul says earlier in Ephesians, we became by nature children of wrath. We naturally now do all the stuff that brings God's judgment and wrath upon us. We do it by nature now. And Paul says in verse 5, if you look in your Ephesians text, he says sons of disobedience have no inheritance in God's kingdom. And this, the entrance of sin, was the nightfall of what Paul in verse 8 calls darkness. At one time, he says, you were darkness. And this was the nightfall of darkness, just moral, spiritual darkness. Communion is broken, dominion is lost, the inheritance is gone, the world has gone dark. But even before God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve, and he does, you remember in Genesis 3, God promised that he was going to send a new man, a new Adam, the seed of the woman. And this new man was going to restore God's kingdom, would restore a communion between God and man, would restore our dominion like we had in Eden, and would renew for us our inheritance. There would once again be the hope of glory. Now, in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, you know, we've got all this going on in early Genesis about Adam and Eve and so on, and then, you know, we're, we're thinking about humankind and the world as a whole and what's happening with humans now we're all sinners. It's really a mess. The story very quickly narrows down to this one family, the family of Abraham, because God's going to send that new man, that seed of the woman, to this particular family. And so the, the, the story of much of the rest of what we call the Old Testament is, of course, the story of Abraham's family. And one way to read that story of Abraham's family is to, to think of it this way, that at this point, the prospect of that whole earth inheritance, that really big thing that God originally wanted for all humankind, like that's just kind of like on pause. You just kind of like Take that off the table for now. And God begins busily working to restore communion between himself and this family. 
He loves them. He blesses them. He calls them to himself. And Abraham and his kids and grandkids, they have to begin to learn how to trust God again and how to obey God again and how to walk with God as his friends again. God works on restoring communion. And eventually, many, 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 many years later, after what we call the Exodus and Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and all that, many years later, God finally gives this family dominion over a particular piece of land at the east end of the Mediterranean, a kind of new Eden that flows with milk and honey. And so now, after many, many centuries of God kind of working on this family, we have communion again. God is living among his people in the temple. They have dominion over this quite wonderful land. And so God has, it were, has as it were, given them a garden, a little spot to cultivate and to protect. He's given them a kingdom if they can keep it. But you know the story goes on, and you know that Israel is a whole people, and Israel's kings later, they're just faithless sons. They're, they're so much like Adam. And a lot of the story of Israel before Jesus is really just a story of how badly we need that seed <laughs> who his still has not come. We need that son that God promised who is going to faithfully obey and will never yield to the serpent. He's not here yet, and so we're waiting until the very opening words of Jesus' ministry. Do you remember the very first thing Jesus said in his public ministry? What did he say has drawn near? He says the blank has drawn near. What is the blank? The kingdom of God has now drawn near. Why? Because the son is here. The real son we've been waiting for, the true Adam is here. And you'll notice as you read through the gospel stories about Jesus, this son never swerves one single time when he is tempted by the serpent. Not once does he listen to the serpent and follow what the serpent says. And he fulfills every jot and tittle of righteousness. There is not a single precept in the law of God that Jesus does not absolutely obey. And of course, his mission in time is he then takes the sin of the world, the sin of Adam's race, on himself. He didn't sin. He didn't deserve this. He's been obedient. But he takes all that sin and he says, I'll bear it. And he takes it, of course, to the cross. And he drinks on the cross. If you want to think of it in, in this way, the Bible describes it this way. It's as if he drinks in, takes upon himself the very last drop of God's wrath upon our sin. Everything our sin deserves, all the judgment, all the curse, he takes it on himself. Another way of thinking about that, Jesus is pierced, mortally pierced, with that fiery sword that God put outside of Eden when he drove Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve from the garden. He put cherubim with a flaming sword there. You may not come back into God's presence. This is closed to you now. Communion is off. Dominion is off. The inheritance is off. Well, Jesus takes that sword of God's judgment in himself, and he is slain by that sword for us. And the scripture says that when he did that, and when he took God's full wrath upon our sins, what he did in that moment was he tore the curtain, the veil between God and man. He tore it from the top to the bottom. He just shredded it because he has opened the way to go back into the presence of the Father and receive once again, though we were once disobedient sons, we have been reconciled through what Jesus did on the cross. The way to the Father is open. Communion and dominion have been opened once again. And when that son, having done all of that, 
and lain in the grave for three days, when he rises from the dead, that resurrection morning, and it's significant that it's a morning, it is a dawn, it is God's thundering declaration, let there be light. Let there be light in the darkness. It's what Paul says here in verse 14, awake you sleepers in death and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you because he is the dawn. As surely as time and history are directed by the hand of the Lord in what we call providence, it is not just a meandering thing. God is orchestrating and directing the affairs of history. Paul and the rest of the Bible tell us this moment of the resurrection is the turning point from darkness to light. Because now there's a man who's alive and he's never going to die. He's not only beyond the reach of sin, he's beyond the reach of death. He is the deathless Adam. The Bible says he is alive forevermore. And there is no condemnation now that can disrupt our communion with God because he took all the condemnation. Yes? He drank that cup. There's not a drop left in it. And when he is preparing to go back to the Father to claim his throne, what does he say to his disciples? He says, all dominion, all authority has been given to me, not just in the Garden of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. This means that earth inheritance, brothers and sisters, it is back on. And Jesus is the heir of all things. He was the one who will inherit all things. And as if that's not awesome enough, then he goes back to the Father, sits down at the right hand of the Father with all authority, all dominion over all things. And then comes the day of Pentecost, and this is a crazy thing to think about. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus, from his throne in heaven, he pours out something called the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. And that Holy Spirit, who brooded over the waters and brought forth the original creation, who hovered over the womb of Mary and brought forth the Son, now falls in tongues of fire on God's people, the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, and now he brings forth not the Son, but the bride, the new Eve. Because even as the first Eve partook of the flesh and blood, the flesh and bones of Adam, this Eve partakes of the very spirit of the resurrected Son of God. Now we have the Son and His bride, and nothing now can stop God's plan that His sons and His daughters in this world, they will be fruitful, they will multiply, they will fill the earth, they will fill every tribe and tongue and people and nation until we are promised every enemy of Jesus is subdued. Death itself is going to be banished. And we are told in Romans 8, the entire creation, the stuff we love in this world, this world is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption and enjoy the glorious liberty of the resurrected sons and daughters of God. The son and his bride will inherit the earth. And I'd like you to notice again, as in Eden, that the kingdom already exists. We have access now to the Father. That is our communion. We are seated with the Son. That is our dominion. But this existing kingdom, which is now, we are told, will grow. And one day the earth and everything it contains will be comprehensively purified and glorified. And that glory, that's our ultimate inheritance. That's the inheritance. You got that nailed down? That's good stuff. Now, I want to feel the goad of it for a sec. How does that goad us? Let's feel the goad just briefly. God wants that prospect of our guaranteed inheritance given to his son and his bride. He wants us to be prodded by that 
in at least two ways. Let me give you these very briefly. Number one, I want to prod you and me with this. Number one, cultivate, guard, and seek to extend the light in your garden. Cultivate, guard, and seek to extend the light in your garden. Look with me at the Ephesians text. Look at verses 8 through 11 again. And listen to this in light of what we just heard. At one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Because the fruit, does that sound like a garden? The fruit of light is found in everything that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord in your garden. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That stuff is poison. It's toxic. It destroys, your, your, it destroys you know, everything that, that could be called life. Don't participate in those unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That is what it means to be children of God, beloved children of God. And what I'd like you to notice is this. As you think about walking as children of light, brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to try to get hold of in your, in your mind and be poked by this. Everything that is one day going to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, everything that is going to make our ultimate inheritance like noonday bright, all of that already exists in the garden of your heart and life. Do you realize that the light of God that will one day make this whole creation as noonday, that dawn has already happened in your heart and life because God has shined in your heart and in your life. Jesus rules you now. He is Lord of your heart and life. You are his. You, are, you belong to the Father through him. The life-giving rule of God is already working in your garden. You have been restored already to fellowship with God. You have communion with God. The way to the Father is absolutely open to you at all times of day or night. That's true right now. God will not love you anymore in the world to come than he does right now. You will be no more a child of God in that world to come than you already are. God's presence with you will be no like more real in that world. The fact that things are going to be more visible in that world doesn't mean they're going to be more real. You already have communion with God. And because you have communion with God, you have communion with each other. You belong to the Father. That means you're brothers and sisters. You say, well, sure, may I can see you know, communion we have now, but dominion? Do you realize the language of Scripture, when you think about it, it's so often about your dominion, your authority as children of God. Do you realize you have absolute authority over sin? Paul says in Romans, sin shall not have dominion over you because God loves you, because you're under his grace. You can say no to every single sin. You have authority to look sin in the eye and say no in the name of Jesus. That's authority. And you have authority to do every good work in the name of Jesus and in the name of your Father. What does that mean, to do every good work? It means make, as Paul says there, look at it again in verse 9, make the fruit of the light of God's life within you, make that fruit visible. Like a vine can be alive, but until it bears fruit, we don't always see the life the way we should. Well, like bring forth the fruit of light. What is the fruit of light? Well, it's just everything good, everything right, everything true. That's how we take dominion. 
It's not proud, violent dominion like the world defines it, just controlling people, exploiting people, stomping on people. No, dominion following Jesus looks like Jesus, <laughs> who went about doing all that was right and good and true. And what is that but rehearsing for our inheritance? Yes? It's like, it's like Gregory and Rafe rehearsing to, to rule the estate one day. We are practicing as we bring forth the fruit of light. We are practicing the very life that we are going to live one day when everything in God's kingdom that's invi invisible right now, there's a lot of things in God's kingdom that are not yet visible. One day it'll all be visible. One day we will see our Father's face. One day we will behold face to face that bridegroom whom our soul loves. One day I'm going to look at you and you're going to look at me and I'm going to see in every one of you the glorious liberty of the children of God resurrected. And in that world, the Father's vast realms in heaven and earth will be spread out before us to rule together for all eternity. That will be glorious, but we are practicing now the, the very things we'll be doing then. We are rehearsing together now for that life as we walk as children of light now bringing forth what is good and right and true. Beloved, does that not simplify your life? Doesn't it clarify your life now? Your life right now, not some imagined life, not someday when I'm really spiritual, right now, the life right before you matters because it is a garden that God has claimed. And your little garden of your heart and your life, it has a purpose. And this purpose is, has no stress of a deadline. You don't have to rush this. There's no anxiety of a pass-fail test. You're, you're a beloved child of God. But your life has a purpose because what your Father wants you to tend and cultivate is what is right before you, your body. Take care of your body, your mind, your emotions your appetites, your relationships, your affairs, your work, your play. Tend all of that and seek to bring forth the fruit of light. Tend your loves toward what's good. Tend your choices toward what's right. Tend your thoughts and your emotions toward what's true. Don't just spend your whole life trying to feel happy and then going to therapy when it doesn't work out. Tend yourself and everything around you toward the good and the right and the true. I think there are just some very simple questions we can ask in doing this, just looking at things in our life right now. And sometimes just asking ourselves, is this doing any real good? Or is it kind of worthless? Is this promoting what is right and just? Is there something about this that's kind of shady? Like, this is the kind of thing I'm tempted to kind of do in the dark. I don't know if I really want this out in the light. No, bring forth the fruit of light in what is right. How about what's true? Does this reflect what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm feeling right now? Does this reflect what's true? Is this real? Is this honest? Or is this furthering lies and half-truths and exaggerations? And the big question that Paul puts before us, just to ponder, I love this in verse 10, try to discern is this pleasing to the Lord? And I love the fact that he says try, because you've got to be honest, I think, some days, brothers and sisters, there's some stuff that's black and white. There are days I'm looking at my life and I'm not entirely sure what would please Jesus. 
So try to discern what is good here, what is right here, what is true here, and do what will please the Lord. It just simplifies things so much. You're rehearsing for the inheritance. You're not earning your inheritance. You're preparing for it. And the beautiful thing about this is you can do it when you're three and you can do it when you're 103. From the youngest child to the oldest age, you can ask yourself and learn to ask yourself, is this pleasing to the Lord? It should goad us. Cultivate, guard, and seek to extend the light in your garden. And in this, a second much quicker goad, look forward to judgment to come. As you cultivate and guard and seek to extend the light in your garden, look forward to the judgment to come. That's what Ecclesiastes says. He says, man, fear God, keep his commandments. Like, bring forth the fruit of light because God's going to bring judgment. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, when we think about judgment, it's kind of scary. But if you're God's beloved child, that judgment to come, the writer of Ecclesiastes puts that forward as a motivation, not an intimidation. That's why we do what we do. Because we understand there is no deed, there is no good thing in this life, there is no right thing I pursue, there is no true thing that I hold on to in this world, no matter how small it is, that God will not reward. You will never lose in, in, in serving the living God. And there is coming a day at that judgment seat of Christ when your whole life and my whole life are gonna lie exposed as a glorious testimony not to the greatness of Ben Miller's works, not to the greatness of your works. You know what your life is gonna be a testimony of as God lays it bare before all to see? It'll be a shouting testimony of the greatness and the power and the goodness of God who worked in you. We will be, as Paul says earlier in this letter, to the praise of the glory of his grace. When God crowns us on judgment day, he will be crowning his own good work in us. So let that prod you with encouragement. Last thing, one of my favorite things John Harold's ever said to me is, Ben, it doesn't matter which way the car is facing, it matters which direction it's moving. And I'm thankful for that little word, uh, that mental picture, because to be honest, some days I'm driving toward the inheritance backwards. My car is all spun around. In this pursuit of our inheritance, in this preparation for our inheritance, seeking what is good and right and true, there are fits and starts. There are summers and winters. There are times when you're going to be very, very perplexed because it just seems like a mess. There are times when you will be cast down. Your car is going to be turned around even as you're sliding toward your inheritance. But the promise of Scripture is that you will never be destroyed and you need never be in despair because he who began the good work in you will complete it until you inherit all things with Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, may we say in view of our inheritance with the Apostle Paul, not that I've already obtained this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make that inheritance, that glory to come my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Yes? Make it so, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.